morning. Happy Sabbath to you. Um, yeah, we are very thankful for our first grandchild. She was born, was it five weeks early? Four and a half pounds. But she's healthy. Yeah. Doesn't matter if she's rich or poor. Health is important. But what's most important is she grows up to know Jesus. You know, I do hope Christ comes soon that she'll be able to grow up in heaven. Wouldn't that be nice? Wow, that'd be something. Now, on a little business, how many are going to be able to help with Stanley and his move tomorrow? Can I see any hands? So, okay, I appreciate that. And um, and so um, I'm picking up his truck at 11, so... So we'll probably meet at his place about 11.30. Okay? So, we have been doing a series on the four atonements. Atonement means, basically another word, could be reconciled. That there's an atonement made for us because sin had separated us from God. And an atonement had to be made to be brought back together with God. And we talked about four atonements because the Bible talks about four atonements. And in most churches, they only talk about one atonement. The atonement made Christ made at the cross. That is the foundational atonement. That's the first atonement. Because if Christ doesn't die for us, there's no way to be reconciled to God. But it's not the final atonement. In fact, we're living in the day of atonement right now because Christ is in the most holy place, and we're in the Day of Atonement, which is the Day of Judgment. But the Bible actually talked about two other atonements, an atonement made in the holy place, an atonement made in the most holy place. And on the very last act, when the sins are not placed on Lucifer in a redemptive way, but only because he's responsible for them. That's the only reason sin exists in the universe, is because the highest of all angels, the one next in authority to Christ himself, imagine that, chose to rebel. And that's where this whole terrible nightmare began. But God in his infinite mercy didn't want to lose us. And so he found a way to win us back. That we can be reconciled with God and be able to see God once again face to face. Our last step in this journey through the sanctuary, of course, brings us to the most holy place. And when we talk about in the most holy place with Jesus... It's the reason we want to go into the most holy place is because who's there? Because Jesus is there. If you and I lived in the first century right now, and I said Jesus is in Galilee, where do you want to go? You want to go to Galilee. But we don't live in that time. That was 2,000 years ago. But if I say Jesus is in the most holy place, where do you want to go? You really do want to go there. And to suggest that you wouldn't want to walk into the most holy place would really be an almost an insult to the Holy Spirit and to God himself. You see my point? We need to be where Jesus is. And there's a group of people called the 144,000 who aren't defiled by the other churches because they follow Jesus, the Lamb, wherever he goes. Here's a group of people who have no guile in their mouth because they follow the Lamb, wherever He goes. And this is the only safe place to be. 
is in the presence of Jesus because what we learn about in every deliverance, and I'm talking about in the spiritual warfare where people are actually demon-possessed, a demon and Jesus can't occupy the same spot. And so if we're with Jesus, this is where we find our protection. And um, so we're going to take a journey. And when we are with Jesus in the most holy place, are we learning? Are we growing? You see, this is where it all happens. It's at the feet of Jesus every day that we grow and we learn. And we want to learn what is he doing in the most holy place? What is in the most holy place that teaches me how to even be more reconciled to God? How to actually be closer to Jesus than at the beginning of our Christian experience, okay? Let's see, did I turn that on? Yep. Oh, there we go. I actually want to start with the seven churches. That might seem a little odd, but I want to establish how important the year 1844 is because in 1844, Jesus went from the most holy, from the holy place into the... And in 1844, he had a people that followed him in there, but most people in Christianity didn't go in there. Okay, that's a problem. So we have these seven churches. Ephesus, of course, represented the early church. And it's not that Smyrna was the only persecuted church, the second church. The early church faced a lot of persecution. But Smyrna is the second church. You can see the dates up there. It takes us up through 313 A.D. Pergamos is where you really began, began to have a lot of compromising coming within the churches, which set up Thyatira, the fourth church, when the papacy actually took over, messing paganism and Christianity, but not just that, taking over the empire. We actually had combined together two things that don't belong together, and that's church and state. And the result of that, of course, was the martyrdom of over 50 million people. But you can see the dates there. It takes us through 1798. Sardis is the time of the, the reformers, which we would be in with Martin Luther. Not that he was the first reformer, but he's the main reformer that we talk about, or put 1517 up there, I should say. And that takes us to 1798. And Philadelphia, I underline that because here was a people who are our pioneers. This is where we begin. William Miller and others who found the prophecy of the 2300-day prophecy that pointed to the year of 1844. Now, they believed that was the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, but it actually represented when Christ would enter into the, the most holy place. And in the description of this church, this is the church of the Millerites, the Advent people, but it's also described as a church of the open door. What door became opened in 1844? The door into the most holy place, right? Because in heaven you have a two-compartment sanctuary of when Christ ascended into heaven, he's in the holy place, and he ministers there until 1844, until he goes through an open door or a veil into the most holy place to do his final work. And so Laodicea is the final church from 1844 on, and it makes sense because Laodicea means a people judged. This is the time of the judgment. But our beginnings begin in Philadelphia, 
where we're the people, our pioneers wound up following Jesus into the most holy place where Jesus is, and most of Christianity did not. Now, um, here's Philadelphia. I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. So when Jesus walks into that most holy place, nobody could prevent him from going in there. Nobody can prevent him from coming out. When Jesus finishes his work, it is done. Okay? Now, that door again was opened uh, in 1844. And that's the door we need to walk through. Um, And this is a way in which we draw closer to Christ. Christ is in there, and the sole purpose of us choosing personally to walk into the most holy place with Jesus is because of the experience we're going to gain that what God can use us to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. Now, if we look at the sanctuary here, we realize that every church basically has this. Every church, as far as I know, preaches that Christ died for us, right? This is the courtyard. This is where Christ died. This is where the lamb was slain. And when we look at the holy place where Christ ascended as our high priest in 31 AD and would be in here until 1844, we could say that the candelabra represents witnessing. Do most churches talk about witnessing? Not all of them, but probably most of them. Some stress it more than others. And then we've got this table of showbread, which represents Jesus as the bread of life, but the words also that we're supposed to partake of every day. Do most churches talk about the importance of studying the Bible? Okay. So, but we do too. We need to do that too. We need all these foundations as well. And then, of course, the altar of incense representing communion with God, um, intercession, prayer. Now, don't most churches preach that we're to accept Christ's sacrifice, we're to witness, we're to study, we're to pray? Okay. But imagine if God, Jesus walks into here in 1844, this is to take us further than that. Okay? There's something more in accepting Christ's sacrifice and witnessing and studying your Bible and prayer. God's saying, look, I've got to, I've got to restore man where he was before he sinned, before he was lost. I have to have a demonstration that people can actually live the way I intended them to live, which Satan argues that whole point. He says people can't obey God. People can't keep his law. But God needs to have a people who can demonstrate this experience. Okay? Now, every piece of furniture in there wasn't for decorating. It meant something for our Christian experience, okay? Now, the sad thing is, is that many Christians who have this also have a lot of erroneous doctrines. They have Sunday, immortality of the soul, law has been nailed to the cross. But had they walked with Jesus into the most holy place, all that would have been corrected. Isn't that right? People can accept the cross, can accept these things, and still hold on to error. Okay? And by going to the most holy place, it corrects all those errors so that people have truth and can prepare people for the soon return of Christ. All truth has to get reestablished again. So 
So we're going to spend time talking about why this makes a difference for us. So I can ask the, this question, why did these churches become fallen churches? Because what year was it when these churches, let me go back, when did these churches, this is our the second angel's message, let's look at that, Revelation, Revelation chapter 14. The first angel's message is verses 6 and 7. And verse 8, and there followed another angel, that's the second, Babylon has fallen as fall in that great city. Who's Babylon in this verse? Revelation 14, 8. It's the apostate Protestant churches, and some might say, well, it's the papacy. Well, it's not the papacy because it had been a fallen church a thousand years before that. Right? These are the fallen churches of Protestantism, and they became fallen churches what year? 1844. And the sole reason they became fallen churches was because they didn't follow Jesus into the most holy place. I mean, all of us believe things that aren't true. But when you're in the most holy place with Jesus, this is where it all gets corrected. You see, this is going deeper into the Word, closer to Christ, be able to see things better that we've never seen before about ourselves and about Jesus and about the work of the church. So when, when you got Christianity saying, well, we don't really want to go into the most holy place with Jesus, we're pretty happy where we are. We like studying a little bit, praying a little bit. Well, what's that sound like? Laodicea. Isn't that exactly what it is? We live in the Laodicean time because Christian churches refuse to follow Jesus into the most holy place, and we're very happy with all their traditions and as far as they were so far in their theology. But it's never enough. We should covet becoming more like Jesus. Learning, we'll be learned throughout eternity. The Bible is our church manual, right? It can't be some creed, because that stifles your growth. And in searching and studying the Bible, we're always going to be learning, learning about Jesus, drawing closer to him. And this is why, as a people, we, we must follow Jesus in the most holy place. But it was the year. It's not the year when the first angels first got preached. That was probably 1831 when William Miller began preaching the first angels' message. But 1844 was a unique year where our people, who found themselves in the Methodist church, like the whites, and other people were members of the Presbyterian church, what was happening to them in 1844 when they're telling, Christ is coming, Christ is coming? They start getting disfellowshipped out of these churches. And his purchase says, well, you're no longer a member here. And so our pioneers were people who didn't have a church, but they followed Jesus. And Jesus made a church out of them. And that's the remnant church. The church of a people into the most holy place, looking for a most holy place experience to become a remnant, to pre prepare a people for the soon return of Christ. Okay. So what we're going to try to cover very quickly are these things that are found in the sanctuary. The cherubim, what we find embroidered on the wall of the most holy place and on this veil. Uh, the Shekinah, the glory, Shekinah glory of God, his presence there. The mercy seat, which is right above the Ark of the Covenant. The jar of manna that's inside, Aaron's rod that's inside, 
the Ark of the Covenant itself, and then the Ten Commandments that are found inside the Ark. Okay? And see what each one of these mean for us. We had covered a little bit uh, of the cherubim that were back there. Okay? Let's see. So, so when you walk into the most holy place, what are you going to, you're going to notice that above the Ark of the Covenant are these two beautiful cherubim whose wings, the tips of their wings touch. And they're embroidered along, embroidered on the wall. And, and of course, the earthly sanctuary is a miniature of the heavenly. That there really are two cherubim above the real. And Jesus ministers before a real Ark of a Covenant. And the Ten Commandments inside the heavenly is the original. Of which Moses was handed a copy. Right? The commandments that God wrote with his own finger and that he handed to Moses is but a copy of the one that's in the heaven. So when men think they can change God's law, really? Well, you can't even get into the most holy place physically in heaven. So how are you going to do that? And God's not changing it. So men have no right to change what God wrote with his own finger. But what I want to kind of bring up here, and I use the word assimilate. How many are here from a foreign country? Okay? And when you come here from another culture, you come to the United States and you become assimilated. You become assimilated to the customs and, and the language. You become Americans. If you were to be a missionary and you'd go to another country of a, a different people with different customs, you'd have to become assimilated. Now, I'm not talking about compromising your faith. I'm saying you're going to learn their language, you're going to learn their customs, you're going to become assimilated to their culture. When we walk into the most holy place, this isn't just about getting right answers in Sabbath school. When we're talking about the most holy place experience, what are we talking about? Being assimilated. Assimilated to what? The presence of angels. The presence of God. Isn't what's happening in the most holy place kind of a taste of what heaven itself is? And what's heaven like? Any envy in heaven? Any hatred? Evil surmising? Is there unity? Is there love? See, this is what you want to be assimilated to. Because if, if we don't follow Jesus into the most holy place and get assimilated to the presence of angels and to God himself, we're being assimilated to what? To the world itself. And being assimilated to this fallen world means you won't be fit for heaven. Is that right? We need to change. Heaven doesn't have to change. We have to change. And God says, this is how you become assimilated. Come to the courtyard. Confess your sins. Recognize your need of a Savior. And by faith, go into that most holy place. And begin to start reading your Bible, eating the bread. 
And you're becoming what? Assimilated to heaven. And take what you learn and begin to share with other people and become a seven-branch candlestick and begin to shine. And as you begin to shine, you begin to become assimilated to holy angels and a holy God. And then you're at that altar of incense and you begin to commune with God as you haven't before. And you realize that I've got to mingle my prayers with the merits of Christ because I have no merit. And as I realize how much I need Jesus and to commune with him and study his life and eat that bread and shine for him, I'm becoming assimilated and yet there's still a work to do in me. And the reason you go by faith into the most holy place is because you're hungry. You're hungry for righteousness. You're hungry to be like Jesus in all things. Not a little bit. You want to be assimilated because you've tasted what this world has to offer. I mean, this is one of the weeks of the worst news. And there's always been bad news. Ten people shot at a grocery store. We don't want to be assimilated to that. Assimilated to hate. The war in Ukraine. Become assimilated to that. This is, a, this is terrible. And it's only going to get worse, friends. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And the only way not to be assimilated by the world is to be assimilated by, by the presence of heaven and heavenly agencies in your life. It's going to be one of the two. And which way it goes is where you spend your time and where your thoughts are. Right? Because by beholding, you become changed. It's just the law. You can't deny the law. It exists. And so we need to start beholding what's in this, what's in this holy place. We realize, first of all, it's, it's all these angels. And what we recognize that the angels are doing is that there's these cherubim, and they're looking towards each other, but they're looking down, and down below them is this mercy seat. And below the mercy seat is the, the Ten Commandments of God. And they look at it with such intense interest, and they're amazed. They're amazed how much mercy God has shown to the human family. Think about us as a race. Think about what we do to each other. It's terrible. And God has mercy. And I think of my own life, things I've said, things I've done. I wish I could take them back, but I can't. And if it isn't for God's mercy, I have absolutely no hope. And angels watch this. They are amazed, and it will be their study for eternity. So part of my assimilation should be every day to recognize how what? Merciful. God has been to me a sinner. Is that part of my assimilation? But you see, Laodicea says, I'm rich and increased with goods, and I'm in need of nothing. And with that kind of mindset, they're just churchy, but they're not saved. There's something more, and God wants us to experience it. These cherubim, they look at the mercy seat, and they're also looking at the law of God, and they're looking about how God came up with a plan 
that both could kiss and belong to each other, how God could be merciful to the human fra- to the human family and not change one iota in his law. Isn't that amazing? And, and we become assimilated when we think about how is God going to do that in me? How many times have I broken his law? And yet he's merciful to me because he still works with me because that means he believes that he could write his law in my heart and my mind, right? Well, if he believes that, I should believe that. But how do you become assimilated to the most holy place if you don't believe you can be obedient to God's Ten Commandments by the mercy and grace of God? You see what I'm saying? Most all the other churches are saying you don't have to keep them. They're nailed to the cross. You're going to keep sitting till Jesus die, or till Jesus comes. You want to be assimilated to that? Those are real thoughts, and from thoughts comes actions, habits, actions. becomes who you are. And I don't want to be assimilated to that kind of thinking. I want to think victoriously. I want to think as the most holy place wants me to think. I've got to believe as God believes, right? And so as we think about what these beautiful angels are looking upon and they, they see the Shekinah glory of God, the mercy seat, and, of course, those Ten Commandments. There's a statement here. It says in Mind, Character, Personality, page 209, the first volume, if we love God with all the heart, we must love his children also. This love is the Spirit of God. It is the heavenly adorning that gives us true nobility and dignity to the soul, and notice this is where I get the word, and assimilates our lives to that of our master. No matter how many good qualities we may have, however honorable and refined we may consider ourselves, if the soul is not baptized with the heavenly grace of love to God and one another, we are deficient in true goodness and unfit for heaven where all is love and unity. We've got to be careful that just because someone dresses well, speaks well, that it means everything's okay in here. Because the only thing that's really okay is if I have that heavenly adorning, which is, which is love. And the barometer is, do I love my enemies? Boy, that's sure tells me where I'm at, right? Because doesn't everybody love those who love them? I mean, some of the people who commit the most worst crimes love people who love them. And Jesus says, well, if that's all you got, and if that's all you want, you're not going to fit in heaven. And that, that agape love comes from from above, and it must be received, how often? Every day. And every time God brings, allows someone to come in your life that rubs you the wrong way, you ever met anybody like that? Are you going to try to love them with your human love that everybody has? Because we're all born with the Greek word phileo, this is where we get Philadelphia, Philadelphia. And that's the kind of love you have for family and your dog or your cat. But that's not a love you'd ever have for your enemy. 
The only way, and, and Adam and Eve had it before they sinned, but they lost agape when they sinned. But it can be restored. And it comes from God. And you only have it if you, if you ask for it. We've got to receive agape love from God for this person or this situation. Supreme love for God and unselfish love for one another, this is the best gift that our Heavenly Father can bestow. This love is not an impulse, but a divine principle. It's a permanent power. The unconverted heart cannot originate it or produce it. Only in a heart where Jesus reigns is it found. So Jesus reigns in my heart if I continue to choose to follow him, right? And if he's in the most holy place, that's where I need to find him and allow love to continue to reign in my heart because I know I can't originate this kind of love. I wasn't born with it, but I can be born again. And the thing is, is this kind of love is not an impulse. Have there been days where you've been pretty nice to people? And then 10 minutes later, an hour later, you see, that's when love is, a, is an impulse. But God wants love in us to be permanent. And I think of a permanent building. It's not a mobile. That means it has a foundation. It's not going anywhere. It's permanent. Is that possible? Daily, I can receive this where I maintain this kind of love, where it becomes permanent. And the more I exercise it, the more it becomes who I am. I start day by day, become a person who's more loving, not less. Only as I continue to exercise this. I am watching the clock. I have a a Zoom meeting at 1.30, so I'm going to have to make sure I finish this in time. Let's go to the Shekinah and assimilation. There above the mercy seat, overshadowed by the wings of the cherubim, dwelt the Shekinah of his glory, God's presence. And it was a perpetual token of his presence. Jesus says, lo, I am with you how often? Always, even until the end of the world. In other words, God is always here. Always knocking at the door of our heart. Never goes away. So part of my assimilation and experiencing the culture of heaven is to believe that God is is always with me. Sometimes we can behave in such a way where we believe in God, but we don't include him in our plans. It's almost as if God isn't present. Adam, his wife comes, he's got the fruit. What did he do wrong? He didn't include God in his plan. He knew his wife got deceived by this serpent. She ate. But he made a decision without, without God. God was not in the plan. 
It wasn't in Eve's plan either. And Sarah, for a while, wanted to submit to God's plan, but without a child for 10 years after the promise, she started creating a plan without, without God. And I can assure you, one of the reasons we're still here, because as a church we keep making plans, but we make plans without God. And we make plans without fallen counsel. Because we think we got a better idea. But look where we are. The most holy place experience means that you lay all your plans at Jesus' feet. You're thinking about moving to the country? Have your plan with God. God knows where that house is. You don't. You'd just be guessing. He knows who your buyer is. He knows who you should buy from. He knows who your neighbors are. You have no clue. But you do know this, that God knows. We want God's plan for our life, don't we? It's the only safe place to go. And in this statement here, consecrate yourself to God in the morning. Make this your first work. Let your prayer be, take me, O Lord, as holy thine. I lay all my plans at thy feet. Use me today in thy service. Abide with me and let all my work be wrought in thee. This is a daily matter. Each morning, consecrate yourself to God for that day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't punish yourself for the past. Surrender all your plans to him to be carried out or given up as his providence shall indicate. Thus, day by day, you may be giving your life into the hands of God, and thus your life will be what? Molded more. That's the same as being assimilated. Assimilated, or more and more, after the life of Christ. If you and I act independent of God in everything we do, how's that any different than what Lucifer did in heaven? It isn't any different. Take God and all your plans because he careth for you and he has the infinite mind. He already knows everything. He can't know any more than he knows. He knows all that there is to know. How much do we know? Of all the knowledge in the universe, put a percentage. What do you think? Is it, is it more than 1%? 0.000. Thank you. <laughs> and in this Shekinah glory, it should make us feel different too as we think about how awesome God is. As the prophet Isaiah beheld the glory of the Lord, he was amazed and overwhelmed with a sense of his own weakness and unworthiness. He cried, Woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King." the Lord of hosts. You know how essential this is? In the end of time, God needs a people who are simulated in the most holy place that in the presence of God's Shekinah glory, we don't grow in pride, but we realize our, our need for God. And yet while God's people are becoming more humble, there's going to be a movement within Christianity that thinks they're so super spiritual, they're going to pass a law. 
And they're so confident in themselves, they're going to force everybody else to keep it. They're not being assimilated in God's presence. It's a different spirit. And when you have a spirit where you think people ought to not be able to buy and sell because they don't worship like you or even be put to death, that is not the spirit of Jesus. They have not been assimilated to heaven. They've been assimilated to this world. Just a religious name on it. It's no different than what all the other pagans did in the past. It is a movement without God in the name of God. And this is where we got to be careful that in our own fallen natural nature, we would wind up doing the same thing. Our only safe place is to have a changed nature where we're being assimilated to the life of Christ. That's the key. There's the mercy seat. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then in Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. I want us to think what, about what it means that Jesus, who's in the most holy place, is a merciful and faithful high priest. Let us begin with, to be a priest for the human race, Jesus would have to be what? He'd have to be human. He couldn't be the priest of the Christian faith as God. He could only be priest of the Christian faith if he becomes a man. Think about leaving the glories of heaven to become a man. How merciful that is. That the only way to save the human race was to become part of them. And it would be an infinite sacrifice even for an angel to do this. Let alone the one who created all the angels. That, my friends, is mercy. And it's not just that he becomes a human. He dies. I can't imagine what it was like in Gethsemane to have all our sins placed on him as if he committed them. God doesn't even have me experience the full measure of my own guilt, let alone everybody else's. And so Jesus is sweating great drops of blood before they even lay a hand on him. Because ultimately, friends, that's what crushed out his life. As that Sister White said, the physical... Sufferings of Christ was the small part of his sufferings. The much bigger part of his sufferings was that sense of separation from his father because that's what sin does. It separates us. And he took all the sins of the world upon himself. Couldn't see beyond the portals of the tomb. And that pained him more, far more, than anything they did physically to him. And he was willing to become that merciful and faithful high priest by first becoming... A lamb. A lamb. Now, if you're going to be a, a priest and you're going to be in a temple, you're going to have to have something to offer. And he can't offer the blood of bulls and bulls and goats because that doesn't take away sin. The only blood that takes away sin is the blood of, of Christ himself. So he has to be a lamb and he also becomes a priest and he also becomes our attorney. Isn't that beautiful? He's our intercessor. The one who knows exactly what it's like 
to be in this flesh, to be tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, becomes the one who pleads your case. But friends, this is exactly what it took for us to be reconciled back with God. He had to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Is he always faithful? Did he finish the race, so to speak, as a lamb? Did he not die? And will he not do the same as a faithful high priest, finish the work that needs to be done? The jar of manna. I love this one. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commandeth. Fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. So there was this jar of manna. Now this is, to me, very interesting, which also points to the year of 1844. So let's think of the history of Aaron's rod. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years uh, in the wilderness to humble thee and prove thee, to know what was in thy heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger, fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. God would rain manna, it be on the ground, when? In the morning. And people were able to take up this manna for how much could they get? A daily, a daily portion. But what would happen if they took extra? It would spoil. What was God trying to teach them? We need to come to God every day, but the reason people took extra was just in case there wasn't any tomorrow. This is a trust issue, isn't it? God led them out of Egypt, and he'd give them all just enough manna for that day. And doesn't he say for us to pray for our our daily bread, not for tomorrow's bread? I want you to think, and, and this is part of our assimilation. As we become assimilated in the image of Jesus Christ, when we trust him for today. And you don't worry about what happened yesterday and become paralyzed by your past because you can't change it. It's history. You do have a future. So if I was worrying about being a parent and I'm worried about my children a year from now, well, why worry about them a year from now? Because the more I worry, I'm stealing from today. The best thing I can do is be the best parent I can be today. And don't allow any of that to be taken by the past or worrying about the future. Because the best thing you can do is just be the best parent you can be today and receive the bread you need for today, just like the Hebrews could only take up so much for today. And so as we think about part of being assimilated into heaven is we have to trust God. Imagine how important trust is going into the end of time. 
when everything's taken from you, and yet God has made promises and he will supply all that we need. So we are to partake of God's word every day. It's best to partake of the word in the morning. We are to trust God to provide our daily need tomorrow and every other day after that. Now, here we get to Aaron's rod. And this does point to 1844. Because Aaron's rod, let's look at the history here. There was opposition against the leadership of Moses and Aaron by Korah, Datham, and Abiram, right? And it says in Numbers, And thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi. For one rod shall be for the head of the household, or the house of his fathers. For it shall come to pass that the man's rod, whom I shall choose, shall blossom. And I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against me, or against you. And it shall come to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the Aaron of, of the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. Sister White says, God here wrought a miracle which was sufficient to silence the complaints of the Israelites, which was to be a standing testimony that God had settled the priesthood upon Aaron. There were other people who wanted to be the priesthood. They wanted to be the leaders. And so God had to settle this. He had to have them get these rods and put their names on them. And the one that God chose, that's the one that would bud and blossom. But what were Moses and Aaron? It was God's chosen spokesperson. Okay? Do we have a chosen spokesperson today? Does God have a prophet today? Okay? Is there opposition? God makes a choice, and men oppose. I wanted you to look at this, because... Let me ask you a question. When did God make his choice? What was the year? 1844. Okay. The the facts relative to Korah and his company, who rebelled against Moses and Aaron and against Jehovah, are recorded for a warning to God's people, especially those who live upon the earth near the close of time. Satan has led persons to imitate the example of Korah, Datham, and Byram, in raising insurrection amongst the people of God. The testimonies, notice that, the testimonies born against hurtful indulgences as tea and coffee, snuff and tobacco have irritated a certain class because it would destroy their idols. Many for a while were undecided whether to make an entire sacrifice of all these hurtful things or reject the plain testimonies born and to yield to the clamors of appetite. This fearful decision at once raised a wall of separation between them and those who were cleansing themselves as God had commanded from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit and were perfecting holiness in their fear of God. Sounds like a most holy place experience. The straight testimonies bore were in their way and caused them great uneasiness, and they found relief in warring against them and striving to make themselves and others believe that they were untrue. So when, when we follow Jesus into the most holy place, and we haven't got to the commandments yet, but we need to, the most holy place really does point to 1844. And the things in the most holy place point to 1844 until the second coming. 
When God would have a people who have done more than accept Christ's sacrifice, study, witness, pray. That God would have a people of the Ten Commandments, having all Ten Commandments written in their heart and mind, eating even more deeply of the manna, but they would have something else that clearly makes this church distinctive. It's Aaron's rod. Somehow in this most holy place experience, it's good to eat of the manna, to eat of God's word, but God gave you something extra in the most holy place. What did he give you? He gave you the spirit of prophecy. And I'm going to assert to you, friends, that when people war against the spirit of prophecy, they are warring against the most holy place experience they could have. Because the purpose of the spirit of prophecy wasn't to displace the Bible. It was to help you understand it better. It was counsel that God was given us to prepare us to have this kind of experience. And people wind up warring against it as if it's in their way. Well, it's not in our way. It's more like a springboard. It helps us leap forward in our experience. We're on very dangerous ground when we work against the spirit of prophecy. God has it in the most holy place to help you have a most holy place experience. Don't throw it away. Embrace it. Study the Bible. Study the spirit of prophecy because it's all part of God's plan of reconciling you closer to himself. So, so far in summary, the cherubim and the Shekinah glory, things that refer to the, 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 the 1844, clearly we have Aaron's rod does, right? And the cherubim and the Shekinah glory, the, the cherubim are looking at what? Mercy and the commandments, which brings up judgment. So the, the, the cherubim are watching this judgment take place of how God can be merciful to the sinner and yet maintain his Ten Commandments. This is clearly an 1844 thing. The Ten Commandments themselves would be. Manna is something that's been there. God's mercy has always been there, but there's something about mercy and the Ten Commandments together that brings forth judgment. And certainly Aaron's rod does. The Ark of the Covenant, I highlighted Ark. The term Ark was used for Noah's ship, right? We call it Moses or uh, Noah's Ark. The basket that floated Moses, right, when he's a baby, was called an Ark. Same Hebrew word. The box that holds the Ten Commandments is an Ark. What do all these have in common? Salvation. There's salvation in this Ark. So, when we, so what's in the ark? The Ten Commandments. So when people say, well, keeping the Ten Commandments has nothing to do with salvation, it's like, well, you haven't studied what the word ark means. The word ark is always associated with salvation. The Ten Commandments is what we're being judged on. The only safe place to be is to allow God to write that law in our hearts and minds. And then the ark emphasized covenant. A covenant means a binding agreement, a legal contract. It's a seal between two or more parties. And so this ark contains God's contract. And what do we find in the ark? Ten commandments. So God's committing himself to save humanity who has transgressed his law 
to now do what? To write it on their hearts and their minds. This is what God has covenanted to do. You are in a fallen condition. You've broken the law. You now have the wages of sin, which is death, and you've got a fallen nature. But you know, I can take care of both of those things. I will allow my son to pay the price of your, your specific sins, the penalty, but I'm also sending my son to change your nature so that if that seed of Jesus is in you, you can be a new creation, born of Jesus. So I can take care of the sin penalty and the nature of it through my son. And let's, uh, we'll go ahead and conclude here. Um, For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a people, or I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. When you study the sanctuary, it's important to look at the details. But don't get so stuck on the details that we feel like we've achieved our understanding of the sanctuary because we can answer a question. The purpose of the sanctuary is to teach us how to draw closer to God. It's, it's one thing to do a Bible study and understand the facts. It's another thing to take the facts and then ask the question, how does this change me? What, why is God teaching me this? How do I apply what I just learned? What's the lesson? And because we can fall, because our culture is one where we, we highlight intelligence, information. But in the Hebrew culture, there's a little bit of that, but the Bible is really written more by looking at people's experiences. The Bible's not filled with trying to prove how smart somebody was. The Bible stories are about people who made right decisions. Isn't that right? You don't have anybody with a 150 IQ in the Bible. And there's no mention of it because it doesn't matter. The woman with two mites, that story is not to highlight how she did on an SAT score. It's there to show that she, in heaven's eyes, was more faithful and had assimilated to the spirit of heaven than the one who only gave from his excess. That's what all these stories are about. Who was being assimilated to heaven and who was not, right? And this is what we want to do. So every day we wake up in the morning and say, Father, help me to draw closer to you, to be more like Jesus, that no matter what the topic, whether it's the sanctuary or any of our other doctrines, how does this help me to become more like Jesus and to be fit, to fit in the presence of holy angels in heaven? I will close with prayer. I'll let you sing, and I've got to get set up. I'm sorry I can't sing with you. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the the message of the sanctuary and your whole plan of salvation that is about how we're reconciled to you, but reconciliation is being in harmony with you, to love what you love and to hate what you hate while never hating people. We just hate what sin does to people. And we love what right doing does to people. And so, Father, help us to love righteousness, hate iniquity, that we may be in full harmony and reconciled to you. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.